Buddhist Geeks Discover the Emerging Face of Buddhism. Episode 236 The Art of Dharmic Embrace. We're joined this week by spiritual teacher and author Terry Patton to speak about some of the challenging issues involved in teaching and practicing an empowering form of Dharma. This is part one of a two part series. Buddhist Geeks is supported largely by the generosity of our listeners. If you like what we're doing, please consider making a one-time or monthly recurring donation by visiting BuddhistGeeks.com forward slash donate. Hello, Buddhist Geeks. This is Vincent Horn, back again for another exciting Buddhist Geeks episode, and today I am joined with Terry Patton. Terry, um, thank you so much for jumping on Skype today and uh, speaking with the Buddhist geeks. We really appreciate it. Yeah, I'm excited to do this, Vince. I've always enjoyed our conversations and I imagine we'll go some new places today. Yeah, yeah, I hope so. Um, Just a little bit of background for people. Because we've started on Buddhist geeks really starting to branch out and speak with people that you could say their home base isn't just purely in Buddhism. They actually are coming from different perspectives or different backgrounds. Terry, actually, I wanted to mention that you're an author. You're one of the principal authors, along with Ken Wilbur, who we've had on the show, of a book called Integral Life Practice, a 21st century blueprint for physical health, emotional balance, mental clarity, and spiritual awakening, which is a whole lot going on there. So um, it'll be cool to get into what Integral Life Practice is. Uh, And I also wanted to mention that Terry is also a host of a popular audio program called Beyond Awakening, which is sort of like taking uh, what we're doing on Buddhist Geeks and sort of trumping it in a certain way because you're going beyond awakening. Um, (laughs) Tell me a little bit about that program because I know that you have different people on there from various backgrounds, a lot of spiritual teachers, a lot of people from the integral community, people that are sort of connected with Ken Wilber. It'd be cool just to hear a little bit about Beyond Awakening. I conceived it based on my perception that the private conversations I was having with deep, multi-decade practitioners were often not connecting with the public conversations that they were having with their students, that we would be talking with students about the things we already understood. But when we got together privately, we'd be asking questions for which we didn't already have good answers. And a lot of those had to do with the facts of our time, the crises that are interlocking in some ways seem to be unprecedented. You know, some would argue that the world's always been in crisis and nothing is new, but there are certainly unique features to the challenges that we face today, and Dharma is evolving. The elephant in the living room seemed to be how does our practice help us rise to the challenge of this time? A lot of us came onto the path feeling that We faced problems that couldn't be solved with the kind of consciousness that created them in the often quoted line from Albert Einstein. And we entered the Dharma in order to become capable of the kind of consciousness that could meet the complexity of our world. But we weren't speaking often enough about exactly how can that be done, because very often people would still be trying to be an expression of their practice in the way they dealt with their practical lives, 
but didn't really have radically new approaches to these intractable problems that the whole human species is facing. And I wanted to have a deeper conversation about that. Mm, so that's the beyond part of Beyond Awakening. It's really not so much that I want to take awakening for granted and is easily misinterpreted as a kind of grandiosity, and it's certainly not meant that way. But beyond merely our personal practice, what then do we do with whatever awakening is real, and how does that make us a force for a healthy, adaptive response to an inflection point in the evolutionary process that we're all here for? Okay, great. And then before we get into some of those topics, because those are rich and complex topics. You mentioned that we've had previous conversations and a lot of our conversations have just been sort of getting ready to have this exploration in some ways, getting sort of on the same page, talking about some of these topics and they're so deep. But first, I wondered if we could talk a little bit about your unique history with spiritual practice because certainly, as I understand it, when you started on the spiritual path, decades ago, you were sort of approaching it like many of your peers at the time as a type of mainly as a way to liberate your own experience. And I wanted to see if you could share a little bit about your early spiritual life and especially your time with um, the guru Adi Da, an infamous and amazingly dynamic character that in the Buddhist world, we don't, you know, a lot of people don't really know about him. (laughs) Yeah, it's very, very hard to do justice to him. I had the good luck that my parents, when I was six years old, moved into an intentional community called the York Center Community Cooperative, where members of uh, the Church of the Brethren, which is one of the peace churches, along with the Quakers and the Mennonites, had acquired about 70-some acres of cornfield in what was a rural area west of Chicago. It's now completely swallowed by the greater Chicagoland area, but at the time it was pretty countrified. I went to a one-room schoolhouse, in fact. Anyway, they invited people of other races and religions to live together with them as a witness for peace and brotherhood. And so it was an interracial community back when that was really radical. They founded the community in 1945. That gave me a sense of how a spiritual commitment required you to live in a way that didn't necessarily conform to social convention. And that was very much what my aunts and uncles in that community communicated to me. So I had politically active and conscientious objectors and leaders in the civil rights and peace movements as mentors growing up and naturally became a pretty active student leader of protests, SDS and whatnot in college, but then had a kind of awakening realizing that I was basically arrogant and that I needed to evolve before I could be a source of something more harmonious and true in the world at large. And, you know, after a little while of just kind of focusing on writing, I was a poet and so forth. That was my my artistic passion. I began to get drawn to personal growth, the human potential movement. I moved to San Francisco. I, I began to do therapies. I got involved with a growth center, a place sort of like Esalen. It was called Cold Mountain Institute uh, up in Canada. Became a resident there, did some very rich encounter groups, and I learned a lot of the beginnings of my path. I, I learned yoga and tai chi and sat sashin and did a silent retreat and began kind of dabbling. And in the process, had a little Ken show moment in which I was just struck very deeply, realized that 
most of what I was doing in my life was done in order to become lovable or to gain love and approval of others. And that the key really was a transformation in my own heart, that my own loving was the point. When I realized that, I realized that I needed to find a teacher. I actually did this epic pilgrimage. I bought this old van and drove down the coast to San Francisco and met the devotees of Chogyam Trungpa and Suzuki Roshi and Swami Sachidananda and Swami Muktananda. Ken Keyes had his living love center in those days. And then encountered the first book that was written by Franklin Jones, was what his name was then. It was called The Knee of Listening. And there was just something about it that really struck me. He had advanced the dialogue about Dharma in some important ways. He was talking about the self-contraction. Back when that word was not pervasive, we, we always talk about contraction today, but that word wasn't in common parlance at all. And he he had a kind of a slogan at, at that time, the ego is not an entity, but an activity. It just struck me as being pretty important and, and, and deeper. And so I, I began to check him out and very quickly got uh, very charmed. And in a sense, I was in touch with an awakened and embodied transmission that, that blew me away. It was so fresh and alive. He was very young. So I, I became a student uh, without having even met him. And then in January of 1974, I drove across the country. I'd gone back to the University of Michigan to finish up my bachelor's degree. I drove out to Los Angeles where his ashram was. And, and uh, in January of, uh, of 1974, I, I met him. And uh, whatever else one may say about him, he was a remarkable human being. His personal presence was so yogically strong and the field of bliss and awakeness and it was a kind of almost a turgid intensity of feeling. I, I remember when I first saw his skin, it almost felt like if you saw a a two-hour-old baby in the middle of a busy airport. You, know, you just wanted to cover it up. It felt so tender and so vulnerable. He was, he was quite remarkable. And, and basically, you know, all, you can get a feeling for it. I, I fell in love. I, I had the classic devotee experience, and I spent 15 years really... I'm, I'm a pretty independent guy, so I, I had, in many ways... A difficult time with the cultic aspects of the gathering around him, and I wasn't always in the best of graces. But in my own way, I was very sincerely living that path for that full time and still remain utterly grateful because the there is an esoteric transmission of mind that I received from him that really pretty much reformatted the hard drive here. And uh, the reputation he has is mostly negative. People dismiss him out of hand because of various things they've heard. And I think that's a shame because I think that actually there are aspects of his written literature, his art, things people can get from viewing videos and audios and reading some of his essays that are, there's, there's a unique potency of embodied awakeness that he transmits that I think is part of the, the medicine that would do us all some good.
today. Nonetheless, I don't defend him. I ended up having to stand up to him and, in a sense, defy him. I think my relationship with him is profoundly paradoxical. I once wrote uh, that uh, to even dare to talk about him is to nominate oneself to be one of the blind men feeling up the elephant and offering an incomplete perspective. He's too difficult and troubling, but most of all, too awakened and brilliant and transmissive to summarize. Uh, There are aspects of how he taught that define what I don't do myself. I feel like there were all kinds of ways that he related to his students that are exactly what I would never do with any of my students today. And yet, you know, even as you ask the question, I feel myself, you know, it's like when you think of someone that you just totally love. I love my guru. He is the very presence of the mystery of existence and the way that mystery transmitted itself to me, body to body, heart, soul, balls and feet, toe to crown, in and out. You know, and, and to me, there's a certain way that he just he just knocks me out. He's sort of Bach, Beethoven, and the Beatles rolled into one in terms of a certain kind of the art of dharmic embrace. So interesting. Uh, as you're sharing, I'm just thinking about all of these profound teachers in the, particularly in the Buddhist world lately, who've been involved in various scandals. And as I'm looking at that, I keep thinking, wow. There's so much crazy stuff happening here, and yet there's such geniuses in certain ways also. It just feels like you're saying there's this paradox in your relationship with Adi Da um, that continues even now, even though you've long since stopped formally studying with him and he's now dead. And I'm just wondering, you know, maybe just to throw this out there, this question about how such amazing brilliance and genius and transparency can coexist with all sorts of other difficulties and confusions, perhaps. It just seems so interesting that in some ways those things actually do tend to come together. And I know in the Buddhist world we have this tendency to think uh, that awakening equals some sort of purified ethical behavior that we could all recognize from the outside as being like awakened activity. But there's also a clear tradition in various Buddhist traditions about crazy wisdom, the Mahasiddhis in India. And, uh, you know, Chagyam Trungpa is a great contemporary example. People who defy those easy categorizations of ethical awakeness. This is something, I, I know you have something to share on this because of your own experience. And I just wanted to throw that question out there to you and just see what, you know, what comes up. Well, there's a lot that comes up. I think that we have several interlocking paradoxes at work that we haven't worked our way through. One of them is that one of the reasons that we come to a teacher is in order to see an example of what a human body-mind can be. So to be inspired and in a sense to template off a, a higher demonstration of what it is to be a human being. And therefore, we're most attracted to the rare specimen. I know sometimes when I've gone to botanical gardens or to visit a a special famous tree, a century oak or kind of the epitome redwood, you really get 
kind of all the potential of what a, a ficus can be in that particular ficus. But the focus on that tends to create a, a distortion in which a lot of students surround such extraordinary teachers, listening raptly to everything the teacher says and really trying to do as they're being instructed to do, imagining that if they did everything the teacher said really, really well, they would be like that teacher. But in, in fact, they happen to be a, a ficus growing in, you know, sandy, rocky soil or whatever. We're all, most of us, kind of cartoon characters. We're bonsais, we're twisted and gnarled in this way and that. And, and no matter how much we practice, some of that is not going to be completely transformed. But because that's the case and because that's rarely acknowledged around these particularly robust specimens, these teachers, even though the teacher might be very gracious and by no means suggesting that students should think of themselves as less than, the student still does. The student still kind of feels like, well, if I was really doing this, I'd be like that wonderful person, and I'm not, so I'm, I'm just kind of not quite doing it. And so I think that a lot of spiritual practitioners have something of a inferiority complex on a certain level. And, and there's a kind of, I used to jokingly call it demotional rather than devotional, demotional culture, <laughs> where, where people get smaller by putting themselves next to these really big characters. Now, the other thing that goes on, of course, is that once a teacher really has broken through to another level of awareness and another level of mastery, perhaps they're awake to the subtle mechanics of how mind and feeling and motivation come into being, and they're able through their way of being in a space to, in a sense, warp the psychosphere in which others are operating so that their influence is profound. And they and they can see that they're operating at a degree of freedom that others don't have. And they're instructing people, and maybe even instructing people as to how to relate to them in certain ways, or they have a tradition that asks for certain kinds of deference. And the teacher role then becomes something that, that people can hide behind, or whether or not they're hiding, they feel a different level of power. And, and out of that, they know that if they just hold back and they only follow rules, they don't really give their gift. So I think there's a contest in many teachers' own hearts, like they can feel themselves really mixing it up and really giving their best transmission when they uncork a bit. And we're sexual beings. Usually it's the, the problems are usually with male teachers and female students. And a lot of those female students are kind of into seducing their teachers. So there's a, uh, and, and there's this power dynamic. It doesn't necessarily invalidate everything that that teacher has done. And yet right now we're, we're at a point in the evolution of culture in which we're all required to be somewhat more transparent. I don't know that transparency should be an absolute value. I think there's a role for privacy in people's lives. But we've evolved to a place where this kind of behavior is no longer okay. We're working into a kind of democracy in which there is accountability, in which even teachers have to begin to be drawn to question themselves, even if they are operating at a level that is superior to everyone around them, there's still a kind of accountability that 
that's necessary if we're to begin to evolve the next Buddha who is a Sangha. And we as students and practitioners have to recognize that there needs to be a kind of responsibility where we stand without falling into an angular skepticism and kind of challenging orientation. We need to be able to empower teachers without without simply deferring to them. And none of us have learned any of these things. And so we're generally caught into a dance where there's kind of a gotcha game in which gurus are guilty until proven innocent. And any sex that a teacher would have with anyone who might have been interested in their teaching is inherently exploitive no matter what. And there's that kind of cynicism that's pervaded the culture that we're all deserved by. I don't think we've become capable of getting beyond our own sexual neurosis to a place where we can establish the next kind of post-conventional moment in dharmic conduct wherein we can really demand that people behave morally and, and hold them accountable, but not require that they simply obey rigid rules and treat the power position as if it's a something inherently corrupt about it. We, we need to learn something about how to evolve it. And that, that's why I personally, it's not my nature to be a dominator. And so in, in my relationships with students, I try to be very transparent in a sense, always give them their give them overt signals that they're at choice and that they have a lot of power. And I try not to hide behind the teacher role because I think that in this time we might be able to evolve a different kind of spiritual culture and that the really exciting thing is in this domain where that untouchable immunity of the teacher is given over to a new possibility. There are a couple things you brought up there that are really provocative. Um, I figured maybe we could touch on at least one of them. Um, you mentioned this piece around women actually seducing gurus or teachers in some cases. And I know the common sense or the common sentiment is that, as you said, the moment a male teacher were to be in relationship with anyone who has any sort of student potential or, or has been a student, that that's immediately seen sometimes as corrupt or wrong. At the same time, there's not been a whole lot said about the fact that this is often a two-way dynamic for men and women. There can be a sense of really wanting the teacher to love us, confusing our own personal needs and neuroses with whatever that thing is we see in the teacher. I've heard stories you know, from teachers, people that I've worked with, describing incidents that aren't talked about much. For instance, a male Zen teacher is in the, uh, in the dokusan room and a woman comes in and is naked. Uh, and certainly that wasn't the expectation from the teacher. <laughs> and, you know, for people that have been around the Dharma scene a long time, they know this. You know, they know that these things happen. You know, we think if we're in that same situation, wow, that would be really difficult. Day in and day out, you're working intimately with people. They're, it's messy. Um, so I, I just wanted to, you know, highlight that point and talk about how it is really more complicated once you've been in and around this stuff for a while to see the dynamics. And, and the pieces you mentioned that I think are so interesting seem to center around this triad of power, sex, and money. Oftentimes those seem to be that come up all the time when it comes to difficulties and community. And in some ways, as a spiritual practitioner, I've seen these are the things that lag behind the most, both in myself and I've seen it in communities I've been part of. They're the things that feel like somehow inherently non-spiritual. And I wonder what you think of that, this 
kind of difficulty in dealing with some of these really nitty-gritty human issues like around sexuality and power and resources and love and attention? Well, these are the quantities that we have most strongly inbuilt, hardwired neurological and biochemical signaling around. You know, it is opportunities for reproduction. It is opportunities to raise one's status. It is power, opportunities to feed first that have defined our, 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 the very evolution of our neurology. And we're social creatures, so we tend to feel comfortable where the rules are clear. And if somebody is top dog in some setting, you know, they get the food first, they get the, their choice of the women. That, that was the way it used to be done in our, you know, back on the savannas when we were living in hunter-gatherer tribes and during which a lot of our hardwiring got laid down. So to pioneer a way of being that goes beyond rigid rules and that really works is a daunting task for all of culture. It's not just in the spiritual world. It's right now everywhere. People don't know how to, how to deal with dating and sex before marriage. And generally, everybody has the experience that they can't wait until marriage for sex, but, and, they, and they do need to get some experience, but generally they feel... There, there are all kinds of cross motives. It, it's complicated, right? We don't know how to work in a gray area in general. And then particularly in a spiritual setting, we're trying to get out of the profane, every man for himself, maximizing our power and influence. And then we tend to fall prey to this postmodern attitude that can't really hold power, you know, where we speak truth to power but we don't really have an unambivalent relationship to it. We don't want more power. And so we, we tend to be spiritual but disempowered. And then we admire somebody who can be spiritual and empowered, but typically they're not playing by the same rules as those who are so careful not to misuse power. And later we feel betrayed. And there's this complexity when we engage a positive projection onto a teacher or even an advanced student and then later discover that they're human, that positive projection turns to a negative projection. I think that we're in a, in a time in which we have to be willing to step out from the costumes and the masks of our roles as teachers and students. And this is one of the ways that I would offer a, a very respectful challenge to many Buddhists because it's non-theistic, because it's so intelligent, because most Western Buddhists are very rational and, and clear, and, and, and many of them very scientifically informed. There's a sense that the tradition is, you know, because it's been able to pass all those tests, that the traditions are, are somehow trustable. But, but you see, because they have these forms, these forms that are so often very, very handy and really, really helpful, they're, they're still training wheels, and they become rigid forms through which people easily can hide. And some of the innovation that's necessary now, if we're going to progress a conscious culture of self-responsible people who are practicing an awakening and whose consciousness is evolving, if we're going to generate that, 
there have to be Buddhists who are stepping through the veils of their own tradition into a territory that's a little less mapped and experimenting with new ways of being in relation to power particularly. That is, spiritual practitioners, if we do possess a higher level of awareness, ought to be more influential rather than less influential over worldly affairs. And I don't think we have any models for experimenting with that. And so becoming empowered and having a positive relationship to power in general, and then being able to be with one another in a way that doesn't involve any of that domination and submission or coercion or subtle peer group pressure and other dynamics that are subtly violent, we have a lot of work to do. And I, th- I think that Buddhists can be leaders in this to the degree that they are stepping through the forms of their cultural tradition more creatively and, and boldly. This is one of the things that came up for me as I thought about this conversation, knowing that I'd be perhaps heard by many Buddhist practitioners who wouldn't otherwise be aware of my work. And, and I wanted to suggest this challenge. And, and I think it's a broader one that, that we're evolving a, a kind of consciousness and practice that is, by its nature, transcending old forms, even as it retains them. And the leadership in transcending those forms, even as we retain them, has been mostly held by people who've stepped outside their traditions. And I'm interested to see more more leadership from people who are standing in their tradition, but not hiding behind it. The way that teachers hide behind the teacher role and don't show their own questioning and don't stand in their questioning and become visible is, this is one of the key places that we can do something new, that we know how to do, where our vulnerability and our integrity might edge us toward the evolution of something that our whole world needs. Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com slash conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice 
or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.